Welcome to This Week in Private Markets, a podcast by TAP. We give investors, allocators, advisors, and others a weekly digest that keeps you in the know about the news in private markets. Please see the show notes for relevant disclaimers. This is the week of October 23rd, and this is what we at TAP saw in private markets. As always, we'll start with the big deals of the week. The healthcare investment firm OrbiMed raised $4.3 billion across multiple funds. KKR closed its private equity tech fund with $3 billion in commitments. BlackRock's Creos private debt fund surpassed its 1.2 billion euro target. And Allianz GEI raised 1 billion euros for the second vintage of its infrastructure PE fund. Now let's jump into the main stories for the week. First up, the L is being taken out of the LBO. Of course, generally, PE funds try to use as much debt as possible to preserve cash for um, uh, more deals and to juice their returns. Um, but with credit costs you know, rising uh, quite rapidly in recent years, lenders in these deals are asking firms to pony up additional equity, so additional cash, when they're trying to refinance. So PE firms are having to, um, well, decide where to put their sparse dollars. What do you guys make of this story? Yeah, this is a pretty big... Uh, headline in my view. I mean, when we think about it, it's been it's been over a quarter of a century, I think since the mid-90s, since basically LBOs were funded by majority equity. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously interest rate environment is is really impacting um how these transactions are getting done. I think this will surely eat into private equity returns. It seems like it's being driven by two things. I mean, one's obviously rates going going up. You know, companies just simply not having the the cash flow or the debt capacity to carry on all this debt. But it also seems like you know lenders, um, you know, notably banks, um, are just simply not extending credit uh, unless private equity is writing a bigger equity check. Um, you know, obviously those are kind of two interrelated points, but you know both of these are definitely squeezing. Um, you know, will have the impact of squeezing private equity returns here in the near term. Um, and so I'm sure these managers are, you know, pretty eagerly awaiting um, some some stabilization of rates or rates coming down in the future, so they can refinance all of this expensive debt and you know fund some dividend recaps. Yeah, it seems like you know I guess debt costs have gone up to 11 um, percent on average for for these these companies, which obviously is much much higher than it was, you know, in a low rate environment. And uh, I don't know, it starts to make you think whether or not this uh, you know private equity, how, how it's really going to fare in this higher rate environment for the longer term. I mean, we saw the curve this week, the, the interest rate curve uh, move much higher or much more like less negative, more steep. So that the long term rates moved higher this week um, in a dramatic way. And so, you know, that kind of shows like this is going to be around for a long while. And I, I was looking here and seeing that, you know, there's actually very little debt that is, you know, coming due this year there's less debt that's coming due next year. So I think that, you know, folks have had time to sort of prepare for, you know, things being higher for longer and lock in rates or or at least not have to roll over debt and have to pony up more cash. Um, and so, I mean, I, I will be interested to see how it's it lasts a lot longer. There's just going to end up being a lot of carnage. But so far, we haven't seen very much like carnage. And I think when this all happened in 2022, when rates rose, people thought there was going to be a lot more carnage than there was. Um, for a little while, the, the debt market shut down then. Debt markets are back open. They're just more expensive. But I don't know. Like now that long-term rates are moving higher, you know, we might see more difficulty in the long run. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think there's there's a difference between, you know, sort of how 
private equity will fare, um, you know, as a as an investment industry versus how these companies are faring. It actually seems like leverage multiples, um, you know, of earnings or of revenue in, in in you know these private equity owned businesses overall are are, are lower and healthier um, mm-hmm. than they were previously. Um, that's not to say that the picture is entirely rosier. I mean, I think you know, company earnings are obviously lower, um, I think, on a relative basis to the fact that interest expenses are just higher. So, um, you know, we we might hit these maturity walls, as you mentioned, Jeff, in the next couple of years. I don't necessarily think that these companies will have so much trouble, you know, refinancing that debt, um, right. given the leverage multiples do look better. Um, but I do think, you know, private equity as a whole um, you know, we'll definitely struggle to to reach the same kind of returns that they previously. Right. I mean, you're getting hit on you're getting hit on like three fronts. You know, you have to you have higher rates that are that are eating into the earnings of the companies that that are being lent to. Um, and you have uh, more capital that you're having to pony up and you have lower leverage on the business that lower turns on the business that you're putting overall. So all three of these things are going to basically hurt the returns of of private equity. And even if we don't see carnage, we're going to see you know, real difficulty in generating the type of types of returns they've had historically. I mean, one thing I do find interesting though, is that then you look back and private equity was created in the middle of the highest interest rate environment ever, right? In the seventies and eighties was when private equity was really created. And so obviously these things can work um, with, with more leverage, but it's it just, it's just about whether or not the, the, the investments that were made um, are going to have to sort of work their way through the system. It seems. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd encourage all the private equity managers to, you know, focus on improving operations, improving profitability, improving growth, uh, not rather than just trying to, you know, do do, do multiples flipping or right. or other types of, you know, financial engineering uh, th- stuff. And you know, that's really it's always kind of flop flip flop back and forth between those two things. And um, we all know that the the operational stuff it's much harder to actually make come true than the than the, and the financial engineering stuff and and even harder than really just counting on multiple expansion from low rates and just the market going up. Good stuff. Let's move on to our next story here. Hard times for the investment funds that have bought music catalogs. Basically, it, it turns out, you know, a lot of the transactions that happened during the last few years during frothy times happened at frothy valuations. And some music rights catalogs may have been bought at prices that were perhaps too high and they're worth a bit less now that interest rates have gone up. And it also seems to have turned out that cash flows have not been as dependable for these um, catalogs. So there's one firm in particular called Hypnosis, which is trading at a 50% discount to their NAV. Um, and they've recently proposed selling 29 catalogs for $440 million to a Blackstone-backed fund. Now, this fund is managed by the same person that runs Hypnosis. so. Um, Perhaps a little bit of a conflict of interest there. Who knows? Um, but the idea was to sell these catalogs and use the proceeds to help off, uh, pay off some of the debt of hypnosis and buy back shares. Now investors are staging a small rebellion. Uh, what do we think? Yeah. I mean, these things are always weird and complicated. You know, my my first internship I ever had was working for uh, Miramax, movie studio that has a whole bunch of old, really great movies. It was owned by Colony Capital, a private equity firm. And the idea was to, you know, buy this portfolio of movies. And what they're talking about here is music, but it's it's relatively the same thing. And then go figure out how to resell the, the cash flow streams in a bunch of different ways. So for instance, we went, we opened up all the international markets with it and went to Europe and we sold the TV rights in Europe and all that. And you try and get 
more bang for your buck, kind of like these operational quote unquote improvements that Adam was just talking about that private equity is supposed to do. And uh, here, you know, they've bought a bunch of really great music, um, Bruce Springsteen, et cetera, et cetera. And um, they haven't been able to squeeze much out of it. And they kind of have this market has really opened up and there's lots more investment in it, lots more competition. They pay higher prices. And then in the end, it seems like what we're looking at here is they're kind of trying some desperation moves to, to unlock some value and, and retain some value, you would say, um, out of these by perhaps doing some affiliated type transactions between uh, between entities uh, to try and like, you know, get some value out of this portfolio that is trading at 50% of what they're marking it as. They were, they were talking about that their valuation firm of where these NAVs are, right? 50% discount, but the valuation firm has not changed the discount rate in the past year. Um, they were saying so obviously the value is much, much lower. These things are really, really difficult investments. So one is that they're levered, obviously. Um, and uh they were they were talking about in their own earnings report, they were talking about a, a 50 basis point move in the, the risk-free rate will create an, uh a basically an 800 basis point move. So 0.5% will create an eight percent move in the value of their underlying holdings. Okay. So they're they're levered, they're highly exposed to this. Rates have moved five percentage points and 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 probably further for them specifically, given how spreads have moved as well. And so, you know, they're they're facing some some really diff, difficult uh times with this portfolio. Um, then on top of that, you 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 have these portfolios have have more difficulties than you'd think. You kind of they were talking about how this guy Merck Mercurial, or no, Merck yeah, Mercurial. Yeah. No, no, his name, his last name is not Mercurial, but yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's not so on the nose. <laughs> yes, Mercuriatus, and and he, he's the CEO of this of Hypnosis. He was talking about how this uh, asset class was kind of like oil, gas, gold. That it was going to have these sort of predictable, known cash flow streams, understandable, and it's not the case. Um, if you look at these, these are really complicated investments. So they've got all sorts of uh, different provisions and rights that people can have ownership to. And obviously there's all sorts of ways that artists can go out of style. You can have an artist who you think their catalog's worth something and then the big scandal comes out even 30 years later that they uh, of stuff they did and now it's worth nothing at all. Or you can have um, a, another situation that came up recently was, um, I don't know if you guys heard about this, but Taylor Swift, um, the, her uh, music label had sold her rights, uh, her not her publishing rights, but her, her rights to her master records to uh, a label owned by Scooter Braun, who's like works with Kanye a lot and Taylor Swift and Kanye West are like mortal enemies. And so Taylor Swift went and made um, remade all of her music, remade six albums of music, just re-recorded it because she had the right to do that. She didn't have the rights to the actual masters. And so she re-recorded the whole thing and obviously destroyed all the value of what they had sold to Scooter Braun's firm. Um, because now all these records, there's there's duplicates of them basically that are called Taylor's version. And so you never know sort of how these rights are going to pan out and and how you're going to be treated in different situations based off the rights you have. And so these, these investments, uh, people got a little ahead of their skis in 2021 buying these sort of, you know, into this hot investment space. Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting story. I mean, you, you've pointed out a lot, Jeff. I mean, one, you know, this, uh, you know, the 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 guy running you know, Mercuriatus running hypnosis saying that song rights were as good as gold or oil. I mean, 
you know, in fact, it looks like they're extremely sensitive to interest rate increases. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not really sure what the basis for that was. But I mean, secondly, besides this kind of, you know, self-dealing here with, um, you know, sort of this this Blackstone-backed um, sister entity also run by him, I mean, it just, it smells a little bit like fraud in my mind. I mean, you know, maybe not fraud, but kind of willful ignorance to the underlying contracts. I and mean, I think, you know, alluded to this, Jeff, like these contracts, these, these rights agreements are incredibly complicated. Um, and the way that essentially, you know, cash flows are divvied up between the artist and, and the, you know, rights of the distributor are not standardized at all. They seem to be very nuanced, very complicated and seem to have a lot of outs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I don't know what kind of disclosures, you know, were provided with respect to how these rights were diligenced, um, you know, what was disclosed to potential investors. Um, but this definitely seems like an investor lawsuit coming up, in, in my opinion. Um, and I think lawyers are frankly going to be all over this. Um, this is not, you know, a piece of gold. This is a very, very seems complicated, nuanced um a piece of legal documentation that, you know, should not necessarily be the basis for, um, you know, whatever kind of highly more generalized investor disclosures that, you know, folks, frankly, probably couldn't understand very well based on what was given to them. Yeah, Mm. they're they're very complicated. I've obviously like looked through a bunch of these types of things before and worked on them. Um, And uh, yeah, they're, they're really difficult to figure out and they have a, they have a huge portfolio of this stuff. So I think it's another example of, Folks having made investments and not wanting to realize losses. Sounds right to me. Should have bought NFTs instead. <laughs> and those things, those things are really easy to understand. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, they're, they're they're still contracts. They're just smart contracts, I guess, or something. But uh, but but yeah, I mean, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. All right, let's move on to the next story. This one's near and dear to our hearts. PE Secondaries funds are having their best fundraising period ever from Q1 to Q3 of this year. Basically, vehicles that have held their final close between January and the end of September raised almost $68 billion, which is a 168% jump from the same period last year. Um, Worth noting is that Goldman Sachs and Blackstone Strategic Partners Fund together represented a very substantial portion of this. Um, but I think my favorite part in all of this is, is folks are saying that they're not actually gaining dry powder because there are so many opportunities to deploy in secondaries. I feel like we're covering the same story again, right? I mean, we feel like we've covered the same story a, a few times today. I mean, this is the flip side of, of these stories, right? Where I think things are, we're trading off of their highs. And these are the folks that are coming in to buy up these portfolios at discounts. And um, obviously at TAP, we, we play in the secondary space. So we we know all these funds mentioned here quite well, and we know the space quite well, and we see it every day in the work that we're doing, that there is just a lot of oversupply of folks who want to sell into this market. So it is still very much undercapitalized. You know, they, they've they had the biggest record. I mean, this isn't just a, a bigger record. I mean, this is, what, is, what do you say, 40% plus bigger um, than- uh, It's plus a 168% jump from the same period last year. So it's an absolute blowout. It's not even- Blowout. It's, 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 yeah. And I think it's over 40% more than the prior record year, Jeff. Right, right, which was 2021. Yeah, so it's 40% more <laughs> even than 2021, right? And so this is sort of this all-weather thing where times are good and it, you raise a lot and times are bad and you raise even more, it seems. So, um, you know, they're, they're, they're having a, a field day out there. It's, it's, it's one of the only markets literally on earth where it's straight up undercapitalized. Like, 
there are not enough dollars ch chasing the the amount of uh, of um, secondaries opportunities that are out there. Yeah, we've definitely been hearing this the last couple of years. You know that this industry continues to be undercapitalized. I I think the other problem, though, the other challenge it faces is, um, you mentioned this, Jeff. I mean, the the amounts coming. There's just an extremely large concentration here for coming from strategic partners, Goldman, Glendower, you know, big funds also coming from from Ardian and Lexington in the near future here. You know, only a handful of large institutions, um, you know, control a very substantial amount of, of this dry powder that, that, that that's actually out there for these investments. Um, and I mean, I think that's that causes a couple problems. I mean, firstly, you know, the, these guys all have, you know, relatively similar, I would say, cost of capital. Um, that means they're going out there and, you know, frankly, bidding quite similar, you know, pricing on, on all of these assets. Um, what I think you really need here is not just more capital, but a greater diversity of investors, greater um, diversity, meaning um, different, you know, return thresholds, different costs of capital so that you actually, you know. Can yeah, but I, I think this I think this masks that. Um a bit like on the long tail, I think they're, yeah, sure. The big numbers, right. Are made up of these large funds and that's where the big capital is getting deployed. And all those transactions actually look roughly the same because those guys all go into this kind of same flow funds. It's the same sellers. It's the very large institutional sellers. So, exactly. and the market is just huge, right. But there is a long tail. And we know this from working at top that we see it all the time, that there is a hugely long tail that is having success raising um, funds uh, for all different types of strategies. And there's lots more folks who are investing in real estate than before and private credit than before and natural resources than before. And folks are spinning up these things that will end up being, you know, bigger funds within these smaller areas. So, I mean, I do think that there is, there is a lot of variety. Like I think that the stats kind of mask how much variety is under the surface there. If you look. There, there's a lot of variety. It's just, those are the, you know, those are the, that's the buy side that frankly needs more funds. Um, mm. and they need to be connected, you know, with, with a greater diversity of sellers. Um, the other yeah. thing that's completely untracked, obviously, is is just secondaries investing. Generally, that's what's not tracked in this stat at all, right? These are folks who invest in secondaries funds, but those aren't the only people investing in secondaries in general. There's LPs who do these directly. They don't go through these secondaries funds and they do the, the transactions directly. And um, those won't be caught in, in, except when we go into, you know, the actual volume numbers that that come out. And even there, I think it's a little bit hard to sometimes get those those LP on LP transactions caught into those numbers. So, I mean, I think that we probably there's probably hidden underneath here even more volume, more activity, more funds being reserved and deployed into secondary transactions uh, than before. I think this is like an understatement um, of the actual activity that's going on. Yeah, I think we definitely know that. Uh, you know, platforms like ours will, I think, continue to shed light on that for sure. Excellent. We move on. Private equity wants a piece of your retirement investments. Basically, according to KKR, individuals have $178 trillion worldwide in savings, and only 1% of that is in alts. Now, when you combine that with the sort of recent shift in consumer preferences from 401ks to IRAs, uh, IRAs having more leeway to invest in alts, you have the makings of a very seductive opportunity for PE funds uh, in terms of fundraising. So KKR, for example, is working on building out partnerships with firms like Fidelity and Schwab to get access to um, capital from individual investors. And KKR is looking to source uh, 30 to 50% of its capital from these channels and from individuals versus 15% today. 
So really a very big increase. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, you know, kind of a boring, there's a boring story and an interesting story in this. I think, I think the boring one, not necessarily boring, but the one we've heard, you know, and the, I think the one that we also see and believe in in our business is institutional, you know, LP market, obviously flat or down um, and, you know, increased uh, interest in sort of this high net worth, um, you know, market um, as a source of, uh, capital for private or for alternative investments, right? I mean, I think we know this. I think what's interesting here are actually the specifics around, you know, the structure and sort of these partnerships and these relationships between, you know, asset managers like KKR and, and you know, wealth managers like Fidelity or Charles Schwab and how they're actually forming these, I think, conglomerates, they're calling them. Um, and yeah, yeah. So operating so companies. Right, right. So it's this, this, the structures, the, the particulars here get more interesting. Like we know the yeah. retail, how's that actually going to happen? And uh, so in, in in this particular structure, these are infrastructure funds, and they structured them as these conglomerates that own direct investments into this infrastructure. And it seems like perhaps one of maybe the whole idea or one of the primary ideas here was that there was there's a limit on how much IRA money you can take in um, to a traditional fund. It seems. Don't quote me on this, but in this article, they were talking about a 25% limit. And this structure, though, doesn't have that. And, you know, KKR's stated goal is to have 50% of their future fundraising come from high net worth individuals, which is kind of, that's kind of mind-blowing itself. Right now, they they, they currently sit at yeah. 15% comes from the this uh, high net worth segment. So, you know, I think that there's an interplay here between structure, operations, and then regulation that is going to be like the most interesting way that this plays out over the course of the next few years. And that we're seeing sort of all these pieces come together in different areas and be sort of pieced together on one-off bases. And we'll see what works and sticks and keeps growing bigger and bigger. Yeah. I mean, I, I think this, you know, this has to continue to grow, right? I mean, there, there have to continue to be sort of an application of these types of structures to all different types of alternative assets. Um, well, these guys have to the, where the money is coming from. Yeah, and they have the lobbyists to make this happen. I mean, one of the interesting things here is that uh, so IRAs can invest in alternative assets, okay? And these are self-directed investments. Then there's 401ks, and 401ks can't have private assets in them. Um, and of course, the primary issue, the reason why they can't, the primary issue is there's all sorts of operational issues, but the primary one is liquidity, that there is no liquidity. Now, the thing that I understand is that 401ks seem perfectly aligned with these investments. I mean, these are 401ks are the longest dated um, type investment. You're going to wait till you're 70 years old to take any of this money out. I mean, yeah, you should have that in private. I mean, this is the one part of your portfolio where you really look like a pension fund and and you probably should be investing like a pension fund. So, um, I mean, I, I think that they will, there's no reason why they should. I am fully for allowing these types of investments uh, from large firms in some way or another to be in your 401k. I understand why you shouldn't be able to put your money into a startup like not do your angel investing out of your 401k. I get that because, you know, there's all sorts of ability for fraud and all this stuff. But if you're talking about a large fund, right, diversified large fund, they should be able to have that in there. In target date funds run by Vanguard, those guys at target date funds should be able to run your target date fund just like a like a pension fund. You have a target date of, of 2050 when you want to take your money out of this, of this uh, thing. They should... Those those Vanguard guys should absolutely be able to run that through private equity, just like a pension fund would, in order to be able to maximize your your you know ability to hit your goals, your financial goals as high net worth individual. 
Jeff moonlighting as sales at KKR. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, I, I think that the one of the big parts is I do think liquidity is a big part of this, despite the fact that there is all this, uh, it is very long term. I think the operations generally of running these, uh, of running these these funds, the way that they work, you put money in, you capital call, you take it out. It's it's so complicated. It's so old school. It's so custom that that needs to change as as part of this in order to get this to work. Right. There needs True. to be new modality of 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 buying into these things and the operations of running the 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 relations with the, with the end customer because it, it it just doesn't work if you're putting you know. Uh, into one of these types of investments a quarter um, or a year, like that's never going to work with the current setup, right? And that's what IRAs really, that's what people are doing. I mean, they're saving, you know, there's maxes on these things. You can't put more than $20,000 into one of these things, into these uh, 401ks, right? So people are not putting more than a a thousand, a couple thousand dollars uh, a month into this. So well, I'm I'm not sure I have anything more convincing to say beyond that. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I left you guys dumbstruck, it seems. <laughs> Perfect. Let's move on to our last story here. Silver Lake is looking to take the Hollywood agency Endeavor private. Endeavor owns multiple talent agencies, uh, WME and IMG, and they also have a majority interest in TKO, which is the result the merger resulting from the UFC and the WWE. So an absolute giant endeavor. Um, and Silver Lake currently owns 71% of the voting shares in Endeavor. Jeff, I got to throw this one to you since you're our, our resident entertainment reporter. Yeah. So, I mean, Endeavor is WME, one of the big talent agencies, CAA, which we talked about a little while ago. There was a French entrepreneur who was investing in, in, in CAA. WME is the other big one. And uh, William Morris was the old name of the of the talent agency. Um, Ari Emanuel, who in the show Entourage, Ari Gold is based off of Ari Emanuel. Ari Emanuel built Endeavor, ended up buying William Morris and making WME. Now Endeavor has become even more of a monster. They have all these underlying properties, the WWE, and they have um, just all these different, this huge sort of media empire. And they've diversified away from the representation type fees from talent agency work uh, a, a bit. And part of that has to do with some of these uh, these strikes and, and the way that sort of the industry has been evolving. Uh, you know, talent agencies themselves can't make much money off of the um, the sort of uh, agency fees. You get paid like usually the standard is ten percent mm-hmm. of whatever your client makes. You get paid that as the and the, those have not turned out to be really well. What has been well for them is getting further into owning stuff. So creative artists agency, I remember. Uh, Back in the day when I went and toured there, they said this building was created uh, by the show ER because they packaged, they did what the thing called packaging uh, uh, for ER. So packaging is basically they put together the whole package of ER and they kind of owned a piece of the show ER that ended up being a huge hit because they put together all the actors and they built this amazing building um, in, in LA based off of that. And uh, Endeavor does not do that anymore. And so Endeavor has been basically trading at... Um, at what they think is a big discount. They they uh, feel that they can unlock a lot of value. Turns out they can when they when they announce this plan, even though I guess it's not supported by their majority shareholder, they after hours they they jumped 24% um after hours when they announced this uh this 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 plan that they were doing where they're gonna potentially sell off assets and break this up and try and do a uh some of the parts or, or whatever it is um to to sort of extract value from this. So um 
yeah, seems to make sense. You know, the 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 kind of some of the traditional businesses that are uh, oriented around talent representation that don't get as high multiples. You know, trading those out for some of these other businesses that are more IP focused, that are more cash flowing type businesses, uh, is probably the right move. Though it sounds like their majority investor Silver Lake doesn't agree with management on this. Yeah, Jeff, I'm curious how you would value on a standalone basis the professional bull riders league. <laughs> uh, not one I've been catching lately. Um, but I think it's exactly these packaging fees that they actually had to divest, right, as a result of this this Writers Guild of America agreement um, mm-hmm. that recently came down, right? So, yeah, um, yeah I, I mean, I don't know, Joe, who, who, like, who was that divested to? I mean, I don't know if you follow that at all. I mean, I, I guess it's curious. Um, why that would change, you know, as a public entity versus, sorry, as a private entity versus a public entity. No idea. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I mean, you know, there's obviously smart people in the room here. Um, and, you know, these guys have been impacted pretty negatively uh, after this. Excellent. Watch this space. Okay. It's been another great episode. We had some really good topics this week. And we'll see you again in another week. Bye-bye. <laughs>